If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Time has come to of the season. No time for the love you send. Time is on my side. Dirty Radio Classics. All right, all right, all right. That is the sound of our next guest. I'm going to dial him up here. While he is in Las Vegas, he's nearby. We're being conscious of the bubble. (laughs) We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the COVID protocols going on uh, in a big Vegas residency here in town. Skid Row drummer Rob Hammersmith here in in Vegas, in town. With the Scorpions. They're winding down their uh, tour, or I should say residency. They've got uh, two more shows, and uh, we're going to find out what else is going on with Rob as he uh, caps up uh, this last week here in town and heads back east, uh, back home. Let's give him a call and see what is up. Rob Hammersmith, the drummer from Skid Row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's give him a ring. See if we can pull this together. Calling now, Rob Hammersmith in his penthouse suite. Oh, yeah. Hey, Crystal Clear, Rob Hammersmith, drummer of Skid Row on this, that, and the other radio show live and alive here on DirtyRadio.fm, Dirty Radio Classics. Uh, We're phoning each other from across the valley here in Las Vegas. We're respecting the bubble. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Dude, I appreciate uh, you coming on the show. And, uh, you know, no time better than now to have you on because you guys are uh, wrapping up your uh, final couple of dates here in town with the Scorpions. And, we're, you know, That's we're going right. to kind of jump all over the place and talk about a few different things. Uh, we're, you know, we're not going to go back from, you know, when uh, you graced this earth with, uh, you know, your birth. But, you know, we're going to dig in a little bit because you got a little bit of a history that's uh, kind of interesting. And I've, I've and, got a bit of a, a, a checkered past, if yeah. you want to uh, put it that way. Sure. Yeah. You know, fortunately, not a lot of mug shots. So we're happy about that, right? We don't, yeah, we don't want mug shots. I, I feel like, at least for the time being, I've done a pretty good job of keeping my, uh, my mug shots off the internet. There but, you go. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. Never you know, say never, right? That's actually, listen, the night is young, right? You know, um, I, I do want to talk about your social media presence because uh, in anticipation for having you on, you know, we do a little bit of promotion here, uh, typically either yeah. the day before or the day of. And uh, I noticed you're actually not on a lot of the socials. Are you just strictly on Instagram? I am strictly on Instagram. Tell me, yes, a, li- tell me a little bit about that decision because, you know, everybody, uh, you know, the, the old fogies like myself are still kind of on the Facebook and we're tethered there because we feel like, well, you know, we got a gig to promote or we have a show to promote or, you know, whatever. We want to keep in touch with our long lost cousins that we never see. Um, Absolutely. What's the decision for you to not be really on social media other than an Instagram? So that's a really good question for me personally. Uh, and I've lost track of exactly when it was. It was roughly... Two years ago, so it, it was. It was shortly after the pandemic kicked into high gear, uh, and and I I know everybody. These last two and a half years, everybody has been 
profoundly affected by the events and, and everything that was going on in the world. And I have to be honest with you, I just, I got to a point for myself personally, it wasn't healthy for me. And, and I started to, to recognize that uh, we're living through a time that's very, very divisive. There are a lot of issues and a lot of major, major things happening in our lives. And we were living through a time where it was just one massively divisive issue after another. Right. And I felt like I was in a gymnasium where everybody was given a microphone and told on the count of three, start shouting and don't <laughs> stop shouting until you convince everybody to think and feel exactly as, as you do. And I really, for, this is just for myself personally, sure. I, 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 I got to a point where I started to, to just scale back the, the scope of what I was truly uh, emotionally invested into. And, and to be honest with you, you and I know each other and, and as friends, I can be honest with you and, and your listeners, I often feel bad about it. I feel as though I'm, I should be uh, more active in a lot of things that are happening in the world. But I had to go through a phase where I had to unplug a little bit. And and even going back a couple of years ago when things were saying things that I fully support and fully agree with, uh, I felt like even those people were shouting at me. Um, and I'm generalizing. There are obviously the exceptions to that. And we all have our, our close circle of friends and family and people who are, are well-behaved and, and act like a, like mature, uh, uh, you know, responsible citizens. Uh but I really just went through a phase where I felt like I wanted to tune out some of the, the white noise and really kind of calibrate myself. Uh, that said, it's interesting that you bring it up because all of the things that you mentioned in terms of keeping up with events and social, social things, all of that stuff is starting to come back. And that's such a huge part of our, of our daily lives. Yeah. Uh, I have recently gone through a phase where I've noticed that I miss it a little bit. Um, I feel disconnected. I feel disconnected from my friends who play music. I feel disconnected from my family Yeah. and everybody's going back to their lives, which is a wonderful thing. Things are slowly getting back to normal. I, and I do feel like I'm missing out a little bit. So the potential for me to get back into that pool is, is pretty strong at this point. Uh, but for me, it was just a personal decision. I just wanted to take a moment to step back and really, really scale down my world, if you will. Yeah, well, that actually might be the answer as you sort of, you know, reintroduce uh, this beloved and often hated social media back into your life where, you know, maybe you, you, you bring it back and you just really put a fence around your tight knit friends and family and try and keep, right. keep the rubbish on the other side of the fence. You know what I mean? So of course, and slowly over time, I'm sure I will let the rubbish back in. And you don't really, <laughs> you, you don't realize it's happening. Yeah. And oftentimes yeah, yeah. you don't know it's, it's not healthy for you until you get into that, that environment. Uh, I just needed to calibrate myself and really, really take some time off. Uh, so I figured what better time than when I'm not working and not playing shows and not promoting and not missing out on any concerts and the things that I love and, and absolutely enjoy doing. Uh, so that was my motivation behind it. But you're absolutely right. It's a, th there are some advantages to it and I will fully acknowledge there's a, there's a use for it. And, and 
it does. Uh, it just needs to be used responsibly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a necessary evil, and 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 you know, you're right. The last couple of years have been, uh, you know, fueled by you know, obviously pandemic, which is you know, what is this? How do we deal with it? If we've never exactly. seen this. Yeah. And then you know, also you know, a lot of political stuff going on. And the reality yep. is, is you know, you can't really discuss and go, hey, well, you know, man, that doesn't resonate with me. I like, you know, you can't have that discussion. It's either you know, black or white, and if you're black and you're not white, then it's, you know, one thing. And if you're vice versa, it's another thing that's like, you know, it's okay if we, if we have a discussion here and, and say, well, you know, I don't really like liver and onions. It's okay. It's okay. That's exactly it. You know See, what I mean? I so, find, go ahead. Exactly. I, f- I find for myself, and I'm sure that you have probably experienced this over the last couple of years, you're hundred percent right with the, the political uh, climate being such a, a talking point in, in the U.S. and now globally. It, it's always been, but but we've kind of been stuck in our own little set of issues here in our country over the last few years. Uh, and I find if I just have a conversation with whether it's my neighbors or my family or my friends, if I just have a conversation, people are pretty rational and pretty level-headed. Yeah. Uh, but in the social media world, in the online world, there's that barrier, right? So there's that anonymous buffer zone where people feel emboldened or maybe even entitled to be able to say whatever they want. And I feel like the, the ability to compromise and exchange ideas, that's not at all what was happening for me, for myself personally. I really just see, see people wanting to shout and they want to, they won't be happy until they hear exactly what they think coming out of your mouth and they will accept nothing less than that. Uh, so that was that was that was kind of my motivation behind it. But like you, uh, if we just have a conversation about it, we're all pretty good at the end of the day, right? So so hopefully that's true. That's what I'm finding. Yeah, no, no, no. We won't stay on this too long. But I, but I find it interesting because you know it is this necessary evil as a, a member of a big band, and right. uh, you know, and and you know, this day and age, rock and roll bands have you know a lot of drama to them at times, you know, whether there's former members, whatever, who's going on, things are happening. And so everybody now has a megaphone attached to their mouth. That's exactly it. Yeah. Where back in the day, it wasn't that, you know, and we didn't have that connection to our rock stars. You know, now I can go and tweet Steven Tyler and tell him, you know, Joey Kramer should be behind the drums or whatever. You know what I mean? Sure. You know what I mean? Which it's a great thing, but it's also kind of a bad thing. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, it just needs to be used responsibly. Like everything else in my life that I enjoy, (laughs) it just needs to be used responsibly. Right on, right on. All right. Well, that, that yeah. that's uh, social media talk with Rob Hammerstein. <laughs> yeah, right. That's it. Hey, um, yeah. Rob, let me ask you this. Um, let's go back to uh, East Coast days. Uh, you know, okay. I was reading a little bit about your bio, and uh, and and you made a move. I I wasn't aware of this. You made a move to uh, Los Angeles, and so I, I, when was this, and what was sort of the impetus? Because I did that move in '92. Uh, you, you know, okay. 18 and, uh, and, and they're, you know, 18 in life. Right. And packing That's up, the, packing up the Dodge Daytona. My buddy had his Ford Fairmont or whatever. And we attached a U-Haul and we drove from, you know, Northwest Indiana to Los Angeles two weeks before the LA riots actually. So oh, perfect. perfect. Yeah. Timing, yeah. Right? Great timing. Yeah. My mom is freaking out, you know, cause of course LA's on the news and it's like on fire and brimstone. That's right. And if you remember it back in, in those days, if you weren't living there and seeing it firsthand, you were convinced that they were burning the city. Down, oh yeah. That the whole place, the sky was falling yep. and it was, it was <laughs> such a major, major news story at the time. So I can only imagine the, uh, the fear in your, uh, in your mom's, uh, 
in, oh in your God. mother's mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's tell me, crazy. tell me about your move out there and what was the impetus for that? So, uh, right about the same time. So I left, uh, Rochester, New York in, uh, I want to say it was either June or July of 1993. So just shortly after you left yeah, okay. to go, and I actually ended up in Costa Mesa, California. So Orange County, just a little bit South of the Los Angeles area. And like so many people, uh, at that age and, and, and people in the world that you and I are in, in, in the music world or in the entertainment industry, that was still the place to go. That was really still, obviously the Seattle music scene was happening. That, that was in full force at the time, but for the school of, of music and the, and the things that, that I was into and the school that I was coming out of LA had been the place for so long. Yeah. So I kind of just, I was that young kid with, with, hopes and dreams and and you know too stupid to not know what i didn't know and and it was awesome i loved i, I missed the innocence and in, in that time and just that idea of anything is possible i'm in it and and like a lot of people i just packed up what i could and i went out there with the intention of finding something in the music world unfortunately for myself and i and i say unfortunately but the reality of that situation like so many of us who did that I got out there and realized, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know how to pursue these things. I don't really know. What what do I do now? Now I'm here. Anybody can drive. I have a license. So I physically got to California and just had no idea what to do from there. So I kind of floundered around for a couple of years out there in the, the Orange County area. Uh, and then at one point kind of realized uh you know what? I need to I need to I need to get it together. I need to start to come up with a plan and actually figure out how I'm going to do this. Uh, I quickly, as a young kid, as a young player, I also realized uh, I had a lot of work to do as a player. It's okay to have those hopes and dreams, but as an artist, as a player, as a musician, I had a lot of work to do. And when you when you jump into a, a talent pool that's a lot larger than what you're used to, sure. it's, a, it's a bit of a reality check, but it's good. I, you know, you have to do it. It's a necessary part of the process. Uh, but for me, that was my that was my wake up call that that you can do anything you want to do, but but you better you better buckle down and you better stop thinking it's all skateboards and hanging out at the beach and and that was a uh, that was a bit of a harsh lesson for me. But here we are. Yeah, well, you know, and, and think about that because uh, well, we'll talk about your your move to the uh, back to the East Coast. Um, but yeah, you know, it's moving out there as a teenager. You're now a small fish in a very big sea, and you're exactly. like, wow, there's there's eight thousand drummers, and you know, and I, I would go to some of the auditions, uh, you know, for some of these bands, and. And you're thinking just like, you know, two or three guys are going to show up and, you know, you're like, well, I was kind of the cat's meow in my little Griffith, Indiana band. I should be good. You know, and you show up and there's sure. 20 guys there and you're going, oh, my God. And, you know, one of those guys at the, you know, Alanis Morissette audition I did is Taylor Hawkins. I mean, think about of that. And I'm like, yeah, this dude's a my I'm packing up my gear right after. Right. Uh, and I did get a call back and I and I auditioned for her twice and I'm packing up my gear and Taylor and his guys that ended up getting the gig. They had been doing some sort of like crazy jazz fusion rock thing you know okay. so here are three guys that have been playing together doing you know like the baked potato or whatever and they're right. all so she's got a she's got a, just add water band you know and that's exactly it and yeah. so i hear like taylor playing drum I'm like oh that dude's gonna get the gig he's awesome you know what i mean right i was like i was cool with that because i was actually trying to get my band 
a record deal with, and I was like, oh, well, I'll use this audition to hand my little package. I didn't even sure. care about the audition, you know, and, yeah. but you know, you, you think about that and uh, how many great players there are that are unknowns, you know, and uh, you know, next thing you know, you're like, oh, wow, I, I'm not, I'm not the cream of the crop anymore. I'm not. Uh, That's exactly right. In the, yeah. in the Were you in a big regional band on the East coast in New York? Definitely not by no means. Mm. Uh, so I played all throughout high school. And then for a couple of years after high school, uh, I played with friends of mine in the small town outside of Buffalo, New York that I grew up in. I, uh, we were a big deal in our small town, but it wasn't so much that we were the best band or even a, a, a great band. We were one of the only bands and, and you kind of fall into that trap of, of thinking it's that easy. Uh, we worked very hard. We had a great work ethic. We were committed to it. But as you said, when you get into the, into the real world and the larger talent pool, uh, you've also got to be able to back it up. You've got to back it up and, oh, and yeah. people are, are looking for somebody who who have already progressed to a certain point in the process. And that just wasn't me at that time in my life. I'm really glad I did it. I wouldn't trade those experiences. Drum and percussion yeah. was really starting to launch their brand. Uh-huh. And I have forgotten exactly where I, I believe their first showroom was. I might be mistaken. It was in either Santa Ana or... Uh, maybe Tustin, California, down in that area. And I remember driving out to their shop, and this is in the early 90s. So if you think of the Southern California music scene, you mentioned Taylor Hawkins. He was he was a player of theirs for a while, and, and Adrian from No Doubt, and yeah. all these early 90s bands that were kind of helping this company launch their brand. And I remember going into their, their drum shop, and it was like every kid that was just hanging out there could play circles around me. And, <laughs> and it was all of a sudden I had that moment where I'm like, Oh man, this is a, this is going to be a process. Yeah. I'm 3000 miles away from home and Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I look back on that and I actually, through that time period in my life, I made some wonderful friends, people that I'm still in contact with and still close with. And, and, uh, again, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. It was great. What was the uh, what was the thing that got you into drums? For me, my brother took me to my first uh, my first concert was Dio and Rough Cut, and That's awesome. and when Vinny Appice just started hitting the drums, I, I was like, oh my god, we eleventh throw, and I, I was like, and my brother played bass. Uh, we always had music in the house. My brother Scott played some guitar, you know, for the school and stuff. So there was always a lot of music, and we listened to you know seven o'clock in the morning trying to get up to go to school. There's Aerosmith playing, and uh, while That's you great. don't hear it, the listeners hear it. There's a, a Rats in the Cellar cover that you guys did some years ago playing right now in fact but uh oh great yeah so you know there was always a lot of music and and all my friends uh in school were were just about maybe a year ahead of me getting into music and i went to that first deal concert in uh 83 and i was like that was it what got you into music and playing drums so when i was a kid my father took our whole family so my my mom my dad my sister and i we all went to see Roy Orbison. So that was my first actual concert. And I say rock show and, and, and he was for that, for that time, for that era, he was absolutely a a rock star. He was was such a a big, big presence and and such a celebrity. Uh, And I remember seeing that show and not really being outside of, of having heard pretty woman and a couple of other songs around the house. I wasn't really aware of, of, I didn't really have a concept of how large a figure he was in the entertainment world. So my father took our entire family to see Roy Orbison. 
And I was just completely like you when you went to see Dio and you see Vinny play for the first time. You're just you're just blown away. You you really you really just you feel like you're seeing something that's so much larger than life. And that's exactly how I felt about the whole thing. When I look back on it, what's kind of funny is I didn't I didn't really I don't think I focused I wasn't hyper focused on the drummer necessarily. I was just completely blown away by the whole experience, the whole thing and the way people were reacting to, to what was going on and just the, the lights and the sound and all the excitement that goes along with it. And it wasn't until shortly afterwards that I, that I started playing drums. And to be honest with you, I don't, I don't really know what it was about playing drums. I just, I wanted to do something musical and I guess maybe as a as a kid, I just had too much energy, and the idea of hitting things was more was more appealing to me. I don't know. Uh, but as soon as I started playing drums in in school, that's where it kind of all took off for me, and I realized, okay, this is something that I really really enjoy doing, and and I feel strongly about it. And from there, it kind of just took off, and and I've been with it ever since. So your your time in L.A., uh, you spent a few years there, and you're kind of. Figuring out where your place is, uh, what gets you back to the East Coast? And, and, and so after L.A., you moved to uh, Atlanta, Georgia area? Uh, well, uh, yes. And I did go back to western New York, the area that I'm originally from. I went back to, to that area and the, uh, the Rochester, New York area. Uh, I went back there for a couple of years, and I really – you know, we were talking about the social media thing that I did a couple of years ago. I feel like my life is a series of reset, reset buttons. Uh, so I think – I got to a point where I knew I knew I needed to buckle down. I knew I needed to kind of get away from some of those distractions and and really start taking things seriously. And everybody goes through that in their life and I think it's I think it's great and I think it's fun to be young and and very few responsibilities and really see some things and experience some things. For myself, I got to a point where I wanted to buckle down and start taking things seriously. I kind of realized that the clock was was ticking and and you don't want to waste any more time than you have to. So I went back to the to the Buffalo, New York area, Rochester, New York area for a couple of years, played in a couple of bands around that area. Uh, nothing that was was incredibly uh, definitely nothing that was that was successful uh, on on a level outside of the local music scenes there. And, you know, it's like anything else. You do that and, and you get what you can out of it, but you realize that there's something bigger for you out there. And at the time, so now we're talking about mid-90s through late-90s. Uh, and if you remember that time period, the Athens, Georgia music scene was happening. Atlanta, Georgia had a great, great music scene, a great rock scene. A lot of people don't, I don't think outside of that area, a lot of people realize what a great music scene that city had at that time. And I had a couple of friends who I had grown up with and gone to high school with, and they were already living in Atlanta, Georgia. They had been down there for a handful of years. Uh, and this is the best part of the story. I told them I was going to come down for a couple of weeks and check it out, and I showed up with everything I owned. <laughs> uh, and I, I, that was 20-some years ago. I never went back. Uh, so it was a I can I can picture it like it was yesterday the look on their face when I showed up at their apartment and had everything I owned in a U-Haul trailer and told them I was going to be there for a couple of weeks just to check it out. So that was from there it kind of uh, it's become home for me. I I really do enjoy that city. It's a uh, I have I have a lot of fond memories of that time, the music scene back then and ultimately it's a huge part of how I ended up where I am today. So 
So I have a, a lot of fond memories of those days. What were some of the bands kicking around then? Like Collective Soul, aren't they from kind of that area? They are, yeah. So Collective Soul is one, uh, Butch Walker, Marvel. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you had the Athens music scene happening back then. You, know, you had your REMs and, and Widespread Panic and a lot of stuff that, that I wasn't necessarily, that wasn't the road I was going down. However, there was a lot of, of music and music industry things happening back then. And then through the, the early 2000s, there's been a ton a ton of bands who have really broken from that area. So uh, your listeners might be familiar with, with Blackberry Smoke and sure. Mastodon, all those guys. We all kind of came out of the same scene. Uh, and the list goes on. Manchester Orchestra is a, is a band. It's slightly different from the rock world, more of an indie type of thing, uh, but incredibly successful band that, that was kicking around town. Uh, Black Crows, obviously Black Crows are pretty... Uh, pretty well-known as far as Atlanta bands go. So it was a really, really fun time back then. Uh, this was also still kind of at the, I guess, the tail end of the, the major label days. Uh, and there was a lot of, a lot of uh, music industry presence back then. I think, and this, this is a theory that I, that I have about the, the, the Atlanta music scene back at that time, it was obviously the L.A. explosion for the hard rock world, the L.A. explosion of the mid to late 80s, and then obviously the, the Seattle movement in the early 90s. And I think there was a bit of a cultural thing where maybe the music industry was looking for, for cities to kind of rally behind or a music scene to rally behind and really champion a, a music scene. Um, I consider the Midwest music scene with like Paul Westerberg and Replacements and Soul Asylum and all these cool Midwestern bands to be a, an example of that. Uh, but there was a lot of that happening in Atlanta at the time. I think they were trying to kind of brand it as as this Georgia, Georgia music scene. Uh, so that was another thing that drew me in. Yeah, no, that's actually an interesting theory because uh, the, the the grunge scene that you refer to is the Seattle scene, you know, and it was very, right. you know, much focused on the Pacific Northwest, namely Seattle and all those bands that came out of there. And it's that's kind of an interesting point of view where the, I could see the labels going, hey, where's our next Seattle? You know, let's go. Right. You know, there's a, this cool organic. And, and I almost want to say, you know, like thinking of a band like Collective Soul, you know, not necessarily, but some of these other bands you mentioned almost feel like a little bit of a hybrid of a little bit of the Seattle scene and still kind of a rock scene, but kind of a little bit more organic and kind of absolutely in between or sort of kind of mixed up a little bit. So that that's an interesting uh, outlook on that, actually. Yeah. yeah. And again, at the time, I didn't realize that was what was going on. But then as you kind of grow up and you and you kind of you have a little bit more experience and you're a little bit wiser as to how the business works. I really think that that was something that was happening. And ultimately we all know how that, that ended up with the, the kind of the, the revolutionizing of, of how music is bought and sold and, and the major label role that the, the role that the major labels play in the music industry now has changed so much. Uh, but I'm fortunate that I was there at the time that I was. Did you get into any uh, big regional bands in, uh, in your time in uh, Atlanta? You know, I I played in a band called Rockets to Ruin, uh, and I know that you and I both have some uh, some mutual friends, guys that, that were also involved in that in that band. Uh, you know, we were. I never. It's one of those things when you're in it, you're just so focused on on working hard, and and you always feel like you're chasing what you feel like you're supposed to be doing next. Uh, 
we worked really hard and we, we traveled a lot. We, we did a lot of really cool things for a bunch of kids who were just trying to figure it out and, and do it all on our own. We had some help from some people along the way, but it was, uh, that would have been about the most high profile thing that I did in the Atlanta area. And then shortly afterwards, I played with an artist by the name of Wednesday 13, who you might be familiar with. Yeah, sure. And your listeners might be familiar with. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. And that was really, that was kind of my segue out of, of the Atlanta music scene into ultimately the, the full-time touring world and, and getting out there and, and playing full-time. And I look back another time period in my life that I look back on with fond memories. I love my time with Wednesday and, and those guys were still, still friends to this day and, and still doing what we all love doing. But that was, that was my segue out of, being in the regional touring band who was working hard and then actually getting into the full-time touring world. Yeah, well, that's that's actually a perfect segue. So something I read was that uh, your bass player, Rachel Bolin, um, did uh, some producing on one of the – was it Rockets to Ruin? It was, yes, Rockets to Ruin. He did a record for us. I've lost track of exactly what year it was. I, I want to say it was 2006. Is, is that the connection that uh, got you into Skid Row when they were looking for a drummer? You know, it's it's a huge part of it. So Rachel and I, uh, coincidentally, Rachel moved to the Atlanta, Georgia area around the same time I did. And just like myself, he kind of ended up there on accident. He wasn't really aiming for uh, for Atlanta. And, and again, I went with the intention of staying for two weeks and never left. So we both kind of accidentally <laughs> ended up there. Yeah. And like most cities, once you go out and start playing music, it's it's a pretty tight community. So through mutual friends, you know, everybody kind of meets everybody at one point or another. So Rachel and I had met through a handful of mutual friends and we did some, some recording together, some things he was doing some, some writing and recording outside of Skid Row. And he was, he was kind enough to give me the opportunity to, to come in and record some things that he was working on. And we did some work in the studio and, and, we kind of hit it off both musically and personally. So I had had that relationship with him, but then doing the record with rockets to ruin, they were also kind enough. They being skid row were kind enough to take us out as a support band for a while. Yeah. So the rest of the guys had a chance to, to see me play and, and, you know, we had a chance to, to meet and hang out. So they kind of had a sense of who I was. And then fast forward a handful of years later when they were looking for somebody, that's that's really – it's one of those situations and it sounds cliche in the music world. But you're really you're you're always auditioning for something. You might Absolutely, not know what it is. no, no, no. Yeah. That's a great great point because you know you're talking about the you know you're out there and you're doing your band thing, you know. But uh, you know everybody's kind of watching and you know, hey, I wonder if you know X, Y, or Z left the band, you know. Would this guy be good, you know, and and I I try and take on that attitude because you know I, I do a lot of higher gun stuff. So when I'm out with somebody, right. I try and play my ass off and try and you know mind my p's and q's backstage or whatever because sure. you you never know when you're going to get that call, you know. So that's exactly it. You know, and yeah. it's you have a very a very uh, you have a great track record of of being able to to find something past what you're doing. And there's there's a skill involved in that, and it's a lot of it is really just kind of growing up and and figuring out how everybody around you is operating and, and what they're looking for. But really, the goal is to just leave as many people with a good impression of you as you possibly can. And I say that, and whatever it is you're into, if you're into partying and acting like a maniac, 
you know what, whatever you're into, there's a band out there somewhere that's doing that. I, I know what works for me. I know what my, what my ideal situation looks like. And the goal, just like yourself is to go out and leave as many people with a good impression of you as you can. And you never know when that's going to, when that's going to take you to the next, to the next opportunity. How did that conversation go down? Do you get hit up at a show? Uh, did, did they have any in inclination that they might need to make a, a, a swap at the drum uh, stool? <laughs> or did, you know, did the tour end and then you, know, you get a phone call going, hey, bro, what, what do you got going on? Would you like to come down and play a couple tunes? How did that go, all go down? So to answer your question, they, they had a, a plan. Uh, I did not know. When, when I was originally approached uh, by Rachel, the original conversation was – the opportunity to cover three shows. Mm, okay. They asked if uh, if I would be available to cover three shows, and I can tell you that there's never a bad time to get a call like that from a band like this. Sure, but it it was. I mean, obviously, I was I was more than than ecstatic to do it. It worked out that the dates were were uh, were available for me to do that. So uh, I kind of had a sense that there might be something something more to it. But in all honesty, I might all I could think about was just doing a good job. Holy shit, this is a great opportunity. And, and I don't know what's going to happen, but wouldn't this be great if I just, even if it is three shows, I want to, I want to really, I want to do a good job here. This is, this is something that even if it's three shows, how many people get to play three shows with one of their favorite bands? So for me, it was a, it was a really good opportunity. And again, I sort of had a sense that there might be a little bit more to the story, but it was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, so we, we went out and we all had a great time. We all got along really well and, and played a few shows. And here I am 12 years later. So That's, that's crazy. It. That's crazy. Well, let's see, tell me about the preparation process because – you know, lately I've been doing uh, some of these uh, gigs out here in Vegas. Everybody's like, "Oh, you play a casino every weekend." I'm like, "I can't, I can't break through." I got to tell you something about the scene here. When you're kind of a touring guy or a road guy, and okay. you know, even though I've been here eight years this year, um, wow. there's there's a lot of guys that have been here, you know, ten, twelve years, and they're sort of locked into this casino. Like they're all doing, you know, there's like seven different cover bands with twenty different members, but the set list is kind of the same. And right. a guy like me can't necessarily. Get Get in, like I'm thinking, oh, I'll just get a Vegas gig and I'll be close to home and, you know, play a you know casino or Fremont Street. Not happening. It's like the hardest thing. But you know, lately I've been kind of I'm on the sub list now. You know, so I'm getting the call every you know yeah. few months and. I got to tell you, the starting to crack that firewall. A huh? Just a little bit, man. You know, one, one little hammer at a time. You know, one little pound right. at a time. But it's like you know, the learning process for me is has been very different because it's not like you know, learning uh, you know the seven or eight or you know if it's a headliner, fifteen song set list and a couple of rehearsals. You know, we're doing a lot of tracks and you know because you got to fly in a keyboard for you know right. final countdown or whatever we're doing. You know. Sure. And it's it's very much a different learning process. What's the the learning process for you to to you know? Hey, here's our eight or twelve songs, and uh, you know, here the show's next week. How do you uh, how do you kind of break in to get yourself prepared for that uh, rehearsal, that first rehearsal with those guys? That's a great question. For me, with in context of Skid Row, it was I. Uh, it was both easier in some ways. And, and incredibly difficult in other ways. So what I mean by that, so, so anybody in the rock world and anybody who's ever had a conversation with me knows I was a massive fan of the band and always have been. 
So when you talk about sitting down to learn a set of music, sometimes you're starting from scratch and you know this, and that can be, that can be intimidating. There are so many different layers, Yes, everything from, from the arrangement to the tempo to the, well, is, do they play it like it's recorded or do, do they, do they do different arrangements live and, and all these things? And then sometimes that's just the beginning. Then you've got to sit down and work out the mechanics of actually playing a particular part or a fill that you feel is critical to that song. Yeah. And sometimes that can take time. You've got to, you know, I would love to tell you that, that I can sit down and in five minutes work anything out, but sometimes, you know, it takes me to really bring it up to a level that I, that I want it to be at that can take some time with Skid Row. It was, I was ahead of the game in the sense that I was such a fan. The arrangements and knowing the song wasn't really an issue. Where where it became a challenge is you're now talking about a situation where you have to recreate something that's been established. So when you when you sit down and listen to it with the intention of recreating it, and I'm doing finger quotes here, but but you really you want to convince somebody that they've just heard the song pretty close to the way that they remember it. And you want to take them back to when you're talking about hit songs that have have been around for 30 years, you want people to walk away feeling like they heard that song. Sure. You can take, you can take some liberties and, and you can do things your own way here and there, but it's a different mindset. I think for me, when I really, I need to convince somebody that they just heard this song by this band. It can't be my version of it those songs are way bigger than anything I'm ever going to do on drums. Those, those songs have a part in, in the rock world uh, culture and in, in the timeline. And for me to deviate too far from that is not the right way to approach it in my mind. So that was, that was my mindset is, is really digging in. And as you know, those, those first couple of records, the, the hit songs, Rob Afuso is an amazing drummer and he did some really, really, really cool things on those records. He did some things that are kind of unique to him. Uh, he played some really cool things that a lot of drummers just, they just wouldn't have played it that way. Yeah. I don't, Uh, I don't know Rob as a, uh, like what his background is, but I feel like Rob isn't your traditional rock drummer. I feel like he's got some extra stuff going on. Like he's kind of a a, different school guy. He's a progressive rock drummer all day long. Yeah. uh, And he made some really, really, really cool records with a hard rock band, but he, especially back in that time and that part of his career, he was a prog rock drummer for sure. And there are little moments and little elements of, of creativity where you, you hear it. And it, it just took me a little bit of time to, to sit down and, and really to really sort out, okay, what if I were to go see this band, what would I miss if it wasn't there? What's yeah. really part of, uh, what's part of, you know, sometimes the drum fill going into the chorus. And I can use Dave Grohl as an example of this because he does it so well. If you go into a bar on a Friday night and somebody puts on smells like teen spirit is the obvious example but if you put on a nirvana song pretty much everybody in that bar that's had a couple of drinks is going to air drum the fill that goes from the verse to the chorus <laughs> because it's a hook yeah that's exactly yeah it's it's a hook it's part of the song and and i kind of try to find moments like that where where i didn't want to deviate too far from something that i felt like was way bigger than than me as a player and uh, so that was my mindset going into it, and some moments were a little bit easier than others. I had to put some work into some of it, but uh, but that was my mindset going into it. 
Yeah, I think some of the things uh, when you're when you're learning another drummer's parts, it, you know, and you're you're trying to put your stank on it a little bit because you know you want to sure. you want to sell it, but you also like you said you have to pay respect to man. This is a key part, and you you don't change that part. Um, right. For me, it's like once you unlock that code, you go, oh, this is what it is. Then I feel like it just kind of everything opens up because now you're kind of in their head a little bit, you know. Right. And and while you know. Uh, Drummers are like to me snowflakes, and I don't mean that in the the term that snowflake we're not that means delicate, today. Are we, Troy? No, no, no. I I mean we're all very different. You can get five drummers Absolutely. to play the same, you know, back in black, and everybody will that's play still, it just yeah. a little bit different. And another thing about drummers is there might be a kid that's like just starting off and he's just trying to figure it out, but every drummer has one fill or that one thing that they do. With confidence, so you go. That's that dude's fill right there, and that's awesome. And, and exactly. I, and I think once exactly. you identify that, then you go, okay, that's this is kind of this is a building block, and that's what I try and you know do myself when I'm in these situations where I'm filling in, and you know you try and unlock. You know, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of these things are just half-assed. And oh, hey, are you you know available next week? And here's 30 songs. And it's like you know you can't. You, you can only dip your toes into so many songs and. Have You're sort exactly of, right. You know, but you can't really, really dig in until you, you start playing a couple more times and then you start listening and figuring out. And and then the other thing, you, you, you play your part the way you interpret it and then realize, oh, that's not the right part. And then the next time you're like, all right, next time we hit it, I'm going to I'm going to go back and listen to it and get it right. right. You know, so. Yeah. But, you know, that's a valuable skill as well is is knowing how to in short turnaround prepare for 30 songs. And and, you know, like, as you said, it might not be note for note uh but that's also a valuable skill of saying okay as long as people don't stop tapping their foot and turn around to see what i just did as long as it's not distracting as long as it's not a train wreck knowing how to walk that line and and get through it that's an incredibly valuable skill it for working musicians and it's something that that it requires maintenance if you don't do it on a on a regular basis you know that's a that's a muscle the memory and and the recall being able to to get your head around an entire set of music and maybe a couple days turnaround or whatever it is. Uh, that's a, an incredibly valuable skill. And I think that comes from experience knowing, okay, I've got two days. I've got to prepare for this. What is truly important? Yeah. What, what is the, what's the, what's the, the minimum that I need to focus on to get through it. And the rest I've been playing long enough. I'll just, I can kind of, yeah, you got to kind of, you got to have a little faith in your autopilotness, so to speak. Exactly. You know, you know, yeah. And and that's the biggest thing I battle as a drummer uh, is is having that confidence sometimes because you know I I always want to please, I want to be good. Sometimes the time uh, of preparation isn't there, so you got to kind of exactly. you know use that fake it till you make it kind of vibe and just play with confidence. Going, hey, you know, it, it's hey, it, if you make a mistake, play it twice. You know, <laughs> right? That's <laughs> it's exactly. Jazz. And, and don't you think? So for me, I think that's that's the cur- the curse of doing, uh, I guess, being an artist uh, or a musician in general, anything artistic, really. Number one, you're always your own worst critic, right? Absolutely. So, so, and I also think we all struggle with the the. I'm incredibly insecure as a player. I I feel like that's that's what keeps me motivated. That's what keeps me me driven. But I also have to keep that in check. I really have to keep because it can become an issue if you let your insecurities and your if you're constantly second guessing everything that you think didn't go perfectly, you're going to spend a lot of time in a dark place. And I've, I've learned to let a lot of that go 
uh, it took me a long time to get there. But all those things that you're describing with not having enough prep time and and not really being, I don't know if I'll ever be as prepared for something as I would like to be. Sometimes you just need to go out there on stage and do it. And then you're, if you just get through it once, get it, get it under your belt, you're yeah. going to be fine. Uh, but that's, that's an incredibly uncomfortable situation to be in. Yeah, well, you know, I want to thank you for saying that because um, I think my biggest downfall is what's in my head. And it's like, you know, you, you question whether you, you know, there, oh, there's a fill coming up that I'm not quite sure. You know, you, you know, you know, the bar, you know, you know, there's, you know, the right. count. I mean, most of the stuff I'm playing is, you know, four, you know, whatever, four counts, but it, one, two, three, four. I know I can count to at least four, right? And, right. you know, but there's this little kind of a tricky fill. And then, you know, it's like, but I've played it before. And then you think about it and then you get to the fill and you butcher it because you thought about it. Not because That's you can't exactly play right. it. So right. it's that mind over matter thing, and and I've run into that a lot. You know that insecurity you talk about, and that's actually a really amazing thing. That's for not only drummers, guitar players, whatever. Um, everybody can kind of relate to second guessing yourself, and and the second you do that is typically when you when you fuck it up. <laughs> it, you're you're 100 percent right. Yeah, and as many times as I've learned that lesson, I, I it it only sticks for a short period of time, and yeah. then I make that mistake again. So I think that's human nature to a certain degree. Are there any things in a, like, like in a Skid Row set, whether it's current or, or in the past, that you've always had uh, trouble with or thought about or, you know, just kind of been that one thing that just you kind of hinge on? You know, there, you look at the set list and there's that one song with that one little part that for some reason you just can't get out of your head. You ever had that problem with anything or are you kind of you know that I, now? I do. That's a, that's a great uh, musician in general, but drummer question. Uh, for, for the last couple of years i guess and obviously the last couple of years we haven't been doing a ton of shows but even a couple of years leading up to the the shutdown uh we have been opening our set with the song slave to the grind very and fast very intense tune that's exactly yeah so not only do i have to warm up a little bit if i'm just gonna go out and play that song i really don't feel like i'm comfortable if i go out and play that song cold so i really need to warm up a little bit to play that song but even past that, if I want to play that song with confidence and the weight of playing that I feel like that song deserves, I actually have to do maintenance on that song. So if we take a couple of months off, if we don't tour, if we don't, if we don't have any gigs, that's a song that I run in the basement in my drum room on a regular basis. And it could be, you know, it could be you know, a regular basis. I'm not doing it, you know, numerous times per day. But I can't go a couple weeks without thinking about that song. And it's just there's something about it. There's a certain element to it that I realized pretty quickly. I don't know if it doesn't come natural for me, if I really have to stay sharp on on some things that I feel are important to to accurately playing that song. Uh, but that's one I have to do maintenance on. And it took me a while to figure that out and. And I'll do it maybe, you know, if we don't play for uh, shows for a couple of weeks or whatever, I'll get in there starting a handful of days before the show and I'll start running some stuff in my, I've got a little drum studio in my house and, and I'll start getting in there and loosening up and just, just unlocking those little things in my mind. So when I get to the stage, it's not a complete surprise. Uh, there's that song and there's a couple of others like that in our set. I just want to be able to, to feel like I can play them confidently. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, and I think that's that's probably normal with with most musicians. They probably have that one thing that 
that they'll learn it, they'll get through it, but that doesn't mean it's locked in their in their memory banks forever. I, I, I call it maintenance, so I really have to stay on top of some of that stuff. Yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. You know, it's like, you know, we change the oil on the car and we, you know, whatever, we refill our fluids and, you know, make sure when the milk gets a little bit low, we put a new thing in there. So, you know, you got to right. go, hey, I got to just kind of refresh this because, you know, that that tune in particular, Slaves of the Grind, is what we're talking about here on this, that, and the other radio show, Dirty Radio Dead FM, Dirty Radio Classics with uh, Rob Hammersmith, drummer of Skid Row, over a decade now. Uh, you're you're at a dozen years, uh, Baker's dozen coming up soon for you. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Slave to the grind is like out of the gate. First of all, it's the show opener. You know, so you know it's. I mean, it's it's massive on on many levels. It's a very fast song, very intense tune, and you, you certainly can't uh, you know go zero to sixty uh, on that one super cold. Um, That's right. You've, so you've been in town here for over a week or so. You've done uh, what a half a dozen or so dates, and uh, you got a few more before, a couple more before the uh, the this run here with the Scorpions ends. What's your daily maintenance? Do you do you have uh, do you guys have in your backstage? You have a little kind of like a little pad kid, or are you kind of just dialed in now that you can just kind of go and show up. But what's your preparation when you're doing a situation kind of like this, or when you guys are on a maybe a weekend run or whatever? So if we're on. A- that's it's different on a case by case basis. This particular situation is a little bit different than what we're used to in the sense that we're, we're in one location for an extended period of time. So as you know, normally in the, in the, the touring world, you're, you're in and out. So you're, you spend just as much time traveling as you do yeah. things related to the gig. <laughs> uh, Probably it's more actually, so, more so, you know. It's, that's right. You don't get and paid for the two, the two hour gig or whatever. You get paid for the twenty two hours of travel and nonsense. That's hundred percent. Yeah, the playing <laughs> music I do for free. Exactly. Else that, yeah. <laughs> so this has actually been really good for me. Uh, I do have a little. Uh, it's not a practice pad kit, but I have a practice pad, and uh, there's a German company by the name of Hansenfoot, and I'm, I'm probably not saying that with the confident German accent. Uh, but they make these little plastic drum pedals, and they essentially just simulate the the feel of of kicking a drum pedal. So I have two of those, and I sit on a on a practice pad. And what I've been doing here, because of the way the schedule runs, we'll play a show, and we're not doing back to back shows. So the way the schedule is laid out, it's a show, and then possibly we've had up to three days off before the next show. So in an effort to just stay loose and stay fresh with some of the things that we're doing in the set, uh, at least once on show day, I'll sit down with my earbuds and I'll run through the entire set, just kind of mimicking, you know, sitting at a drum kit. So I'm, I'm moving my hands and moving my legs. And for me and, and anybody who plays or anybody who does anything physical, really, you tend to forget that there's a mental, uh, a mental component to it. So it just really helps me wake up that part of my brain. And, and when I get down there, when I get to the gig, it's not, it's not completely, it's not a shock to me when I put the drumsticks in my hands, I'm staying loose. I'm, I'm keeping that part of my brain open. I'm already thinking about the songs. So I'm, I'm not having to dig in deep and try to find it in my brain when I get there. Uh, so I've been doing that almost on a daily basis. I'll just sit down and even if I take a few songs and then I've been really trying to, to stay loose and just do some practice pad stuff here in my room. Uh, it's funny, all the things that they don't, they don't tell you in the, uh, 
in the documentaries and in all the, the cool glamorous music videos, but I'm trying to not wake up my neighbors in my hotel room while I'm just trying to squeak <laughs> out a few minutes on a practice pad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the uh, gear. And I, and I know you're, you're busy, so we're going to, we'll wrap up with you. we got a couple more things to hit. If you got time, you still good sure. with us? All right, cool. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so we're playing Pearl drums, right? What are we playing right. for, uh, for brass and for pies? We call them in the industry pies, the yeah. symbols, and then, you know, sticks and hardware and all that stuff. We're, we're going to get a little tech talk here, but I mean, you know, Rob's a, a fantastic drummer. He's been in the business for a long time, playing for a heavyweight band like Skid Row. We got to talk about what he's playing. What's he sitting behind? Yeah, so uh, you mentioned Pearl Drums. I've been with Pearl Drums for long uh, time. A long time. Yeah, I was trying to trying to do the math really quickly, but uh, yeah, I've been with those guys for a long time, and and they're great. I absolutely absolutely love that company. Uh, for Symbols, I've been with Sabian Symbols for a number of years now, and another great company. Yeah. Vader Drumsticks. Yeah. Uh, Aquarian Drumheads. Yeah. So you and I have a lot of yeah, we do. <laughs> we have a lot of mutual mutual preferences there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Sabian and all of those companies have been great to me. Aquarian, anybody in the drum world, if you're listening, uh, not only are they they amazing drumheads, but they are probably. Uh, just the nicest and most supportive group of people I've met in this in this industry and in this this community. Uh, I just can't say enough great things about all the people over and, and at, at all these companies really. But Aquarian is a standout. They just they just do it right as far as is looking after their artists and and taking care of somebody like me. Um, so that they I've lost track of how exactly how long I've been with them, but. It sounds cliche, but they're one of those companies where I just have no interest in, in playing anybody else's stuff because I love those guys so much. Yeah, uh, yeah no, 100%. And, you know, in some of these flyout gigs that I'm doing where you're playing whatever <laughs> whatever backline happens to show up, some, sometimes it's right. really you're great. You're playing the, the backline roulette. And sometimes, you, you dude, it's 100%. So, you know, sometimes I'd rather play real roulette, but, you know, but it's like yeah. um, you, you have better odds. But it's like uh, – you show up and, and, you know, you play the stuff you play and, and, and listen, everybody makes great products out there, but you know, you just, you just have your, your, everything feels right from not only just the performance aspect, the reliability aspect of it, and then also dealing with the people to, you know, to facilitate right. getting stuff to where you need to be. I mean, there's that above and beyond factor that it's such a huge factor, but on top of it, they, they make, they just make a great product and, you know, listen, Remo's been in the business forever and they certainly make great drum. But, you know, I, sure. they just don't, you know, I'm going to, for uh, lack of a better term, they don't resonate with me. You know what I mean? I just, I, that's I, all, that, I feel the exact <laughs> same way with these companies. It yeah. just, a lot of these, these brands are this is the stuff I've been playing since I was a kid. Yep. And, and as you said, there are tons and tons of great companies making great things out there. But when I sit down or when I close my eyes and picture a drum kit, this, this is the stuff that, that I picture and, and I've connected with throughout the years. And, and I've tried some of that other stuff and, and it's great, but it doesn't feel, it, it sounds corny to say, but it doesn't feel like home. It doesn't feel like, like what I'm used to, to uh as far as my sound and what i've considered to be my goal what i'm looking for as far as either the sound of the drums or the, yeah. feel of the drums these are the companies that really really work for me 100 percent, 100 percent. let's talk about you getting in the band uh 2010 who's in the lineup obviously we've got the uh the the uh, three amigos up front right and uh, that's right and and johnny solinger's in the band who we lost last year correct that is correct. Yes, unfortunately, yeah, yeah he passed away last year. Uh, 
Yeah, so that was 2010, Johnny Solinger, and then, of course, Rachel Bull and Scotty Hill and Snake Sabo, the three, uh, the three original members. You know, let's let's uh, talk about you. You in the you're in the band in 2010. Uh, Johnny left the band where in like 2016. You know, I would have to take your word for it. Somewhere it was mid- either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. It would have. I would say it would have been either 15 or 16. Uh, I've kind of lost track. Kind of lost track throughout the years. Did you guys, uh, you know, stay in touch after they they made a singer change? You, I, Johnny and I. Uh, not for any particular reason. We, we stayed in touch for a little bit, and you know we would see each other from time to time. Uh, but like everything else in life, unfortunately, we kind of drifted apart, and the phone calls get fewer and fewer and farther sure, between. Sure. And and again, not for any not for any reason, just life kind of takes over, and and we kind of you know once we were on different paths, we didn't really we didn't really talk uh, over the course of the last couple of years. And again, there's absolutely no reason for that. So there's nothing to read into it. Yeah, but. no, 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 no. You just have the, you have that musical bond. That's your musical family, and and of you course. guys are there. You know, you guys are the soldiers right there. You know, for the Skid Row Army. And uh, you yep. know, when 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 there's a changing of the guard, then uh, you know that you know that happens. And it's not. You're right. It's not a personal thing. And uh, you know, the the friendships always last, whether they're you know. A, a phone call away or not, you know, if a year goes by, you still, you know, have those wonderful sentiments about somebody. You guys have had uh, a couple of uh, singers actually in the lineup most recently. Uh, we, we've got Eric from the band Heat that just joined the band. One thing that I noticed when I was looking for some audio of uh, your recordings with Skid Row was that the United World Rebellion, I, I did not realize that it was sort of a trilogy and that this new song, The Gang's All Here, where the album's going to come out this fall, is part of that trilogy. Is that still part of that plan? That is correct, yes. So the, the plan has, has changed and, and morphed slightly from the original plan, but it is definitely the the... Uh, the final chapter, I guess. I, I, I shouldn't use the word final because hopefully we'll continue to make music for years to come. But in terms of, of that that trilogy, uh, what makes it different is it will be the only full-length release for, for that series of recordings. Uh, so it seems like it might be a separate thing, but in our minds, it, it kind of wraps up the whole, the whole story and where we were going with those EPs. And I love... The, the process of making those EPs was really, really interesting for us as a band. Uh, you know, we, we weren't sure if we were going to make new music going back to, to making that first one. And, and you know the reality of, of the music industry and the way music is bought and sold. And, and certainly a band like ours in, in certain parts of the world, the way it's, it's perceived and, and the way people react to it... Uh, we decided that as artists and as musicians that we really wanted to do it, and and it was a lot of fun. We it, the first one was a, a band trying to kind of figure out how to how do how do we make new music again? We haven't done it in a while, and how does a band like ours get back into the the world of making new music? Uh, so I look back on it, and and you know it's like anything else. There are things that we would have done differently if we had the uh, the chance to do it over again, but it was a really fun experience. It was a really fun. I don't, I don't want to use the word experiment, but it kind of was. And uh, I like, I like looking back on it and seeing where it's gone from there. 
Let me ask you a little bit about, you know, having, uh, you know, singer changes while you're sort of in the middle of, you know, a trilogy, which, you know, and right. listen, in this business, you sort of have to adapt, improvise and overcome and sort of sure. roll with what you got. And, and if you lose your singer, you know, in the middle of this sort of concept, then you, you know, you guys completed the, the, the two parts of the, the two EPs, right, with, with Johnny, Correct. That is correct. Yes. And now this this third and final part of this particular trilogy um, brings a new singer. Now you've had ZP in the band for you know five or six years, and correct. from what I understand, he had been the one recording this this third part. You know, the gang's all here, and then lo and behold, the single comes out. There's a different singer. There's a new guy. Uh, you know, the based on what I've read, you guys met him in person, despite the fact you guys have been coordinating things with him, and, and he'd been testing out some tracks. Can you tell me a little bit about that decision to bring somebody in so late in the game when, you know, when everything was seemingly recorded, um, and, and, and now we're starting a residency in Vegas, and Here's a brand new song and here's our brand new singer. And I want to make a comment about the fact that, you know, um, it, it's it's tough to replace a lead singer. And Skid Row's done it quite a few times. And exactly. It's almost good. Yeah, it almost seems like we're getting good at it, right? <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't want to say that. But. No, no, no. But I want to say something notable about the fact that, you know, and this goes back to what you said earlier was, you know, those songs are bigger than, you know, any really one guy or, or, or you know, uh, bigger than me on the drum, you know, th these songs and the way that they're performed is really what it's all about. And that formula seems to be working because now here you guys are in Vegas playing with the Scorpions at a beautiful venue and, uh, and, and a brand new album coming out this year and quite a bit of touring ramping up now. So tell me, a, a, you know, what your thoughts are on that and, and how this all came out where, you know, this kid flies over from Scandinavia and you guys meet him four days before your first gig with Scorps. Yeah. So, uh, it, when, when you tell the story, it sounds pretty, uh, Sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? <laughs> so, so the long, uh, well, I guess the, the shorter version of the story, going back to 2019, uh, Eric Gromwald is from a band. Uh, he played in a band called, he was the front man for a band called Heat for a handful of years. Uh, and they were our support act through Europe going back in 2019. And I've lost track. I think maybe they spent about three weeks on the road with us, something like that. So we were all fans of Eric's. We all, we all had the opportunity to see him perform. We were aware of him even prior to those shows because he is, he is a very, uh, he has a very strong presence in, in his home country of Sweden and that whole part of the world, the Scandinavian and Northern Europe sure. rock world. He has, he has built quite a name for himself. So we were aware of him. Uh, we were obviously fans of his, but what makes that interesting is I think the five of us in our band over the course of three weeks of playing shows with them, I don't think the five of us total said or interacted with them more than a couple of times because in a situation like that, everybody's always so busy and they've got their travel schedule and, and they've got, you know, sound checks and, and gear to load in and he's doing, you know, whether they're doing meet and greets or people are doing doing whatever it is they have to do on a, on a daily basis, we really didn't have a chance to interact with them. So I would be surprised if we said more than than Ted words to each other the entire time we were on the road together. Uh, but we were obviously fans. We would all make a point to, we would listen from the side of the stage when they were on stage every night. And we just, we were just blown away. So fast forward to, to the beginning of this year, trying to, to 
get through the situation that that our band was was in i know it sounds like a cliche answer but it really came down to creative differences it's really not a a great story of of fist fights and and people sleeping with other people's wives and i know that that makes for great documentaries and great stories but it really just came down to to creative differences and not being on the same page uh with zp we we think the world of them it's it was a situation where sometimes it's just it's time to make a change uh so uh we were we were able to to reach out to eric and and we were in contact with one another and and when when we realized we were we were looking at potentially making a change it had come up in conversation and and he was excited about it we were excited about it so it, it kind of snowballed from there. So when you tell the story, we actually all got into a room together here in Las Vegas about three days before the first show. We did a couple days of rehearsals, and, and boom, we were up and running. And in the meantime, he had been working remotely with our producer, Nick Raskulinix, and he was able to record the vocals for the single that was released uh, on the 26th of, of March. So there were a lot of things happening at the same time and kind of behind the scenes. And, and it happened pretty quickly. Once, once things were put in place, it happened pretty quickly. Uh, well, but, you know, what I was going to say, what, what better place to gamble on a new singer coming from overseas and, and, and yeah. starting a residency in Las Vegas? Uh, you know, my, my only question uh, back about the uh, creative differences is, uh, you know, so ZP's in the band for, you know, five plus years, six years. You guys have, uh, from what I understand, have tracked the, the whole album with them. And then in the, you know, the 11th hour, kind of pull the plug on that and make, I mean, it's a pretty radical change. Um, you know, it, considering the, the timing of your residency here in Las Vegas at Zappos with the, the Scorpions, was there any kind of like, what the fuck are we doing? Or was it just like this, you know, because it, it just seems so late in the game to make that move. It, it just is. seems very it risky. Is. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the idea of what the fuck are we doing, it's almost <laughs> become our default setting. Uh, we, we do that. We do the, that with a lot of situations. You know, yeah, it yeah. was... At the end of the day, everything you said, and when I hear you say it, I, I fully hear how ridiculous the whole thing sounds. Nobody wants to have to go through personnel change, but the reality of, of doing what we do, whether it's a band or whether it's a, I, I don't, I don't even know another a, a football team or whatever the the situation is. Sometimes the the chemistry and the fit is right for a period of time, and and it runs its course and that's it's really yeah again nobody wants to have to go through that but we were in a in a situation where where all parties involved realized it was it was probably time uh so we were sort of i I guess we were sort of forced into it uh but i don't want to say that to lay blame just the universe you know both parties involved it was it was time to make a change so all that said eric's been a blessing we're we're grateful that that he was there and we're grateful that we had the option to do something like that. And, and we consider it to be a, a, a gift that we have somebody that was there and, and able to keep us, keep us from having any downtime. Yeah. So, um, and then, uh, just, just as we wrap up here so I can let you go, um, 
you know, uh, you guys have now been jamming, you know, as a band instead of, you know, the, you know, Hey, can this guy sing the whole set? Can he, can he lead a band? Can he, uh, can he engage the crowd? Uh, I'll tell you firsthand, I was there and thank you by the way, for all the, uh, you know, just hospitality last week, uh, when I got to see this amazing show, which is wrapping up this week here in Las Vegas, uh, Scorpions, uh, Skid Row, putting on a full on almost hour of just action pack, one, two punch, uppercut, uppercut, rock and roll band. Uh, he was very engaging. And, and, and I, I believe I said this to him. I said, you know, I, I, I was a little skeptical on, on just the whole thing. And uh, I, I couldn't keep my eyes off the kid when I wasn't watching you and, and uh, you know, the other three uh, OGs there. Uh, I, I thought he was very engaging, very humble, and just had a very cool vibe. And I was like, after I saw the show, I'm like, okay, I get it. Um, how have things been since you guys have, you know, you got a handful of shows uh, in your front pockets now. What, what's, the, what's the vibe? Is there kind of a brotherhood kind of starting a little bit? There absolutely is. Nice. Yeah. And that's, as you know, you, you get to know your, when you're in a situation like this, you get to know your bandmates pretty quickly. Sure. Uh, and he's been <laughs> for great. better it's or for a, worse. <laughs> you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, it's, it's been a really smooth transition. He's a wonderful, wonderful fit, uh, both on stage and off stage. And that's, as you know, that's every bit is important. Uh, so we've been, we've been really, both parties have been really, really, happy and we're we're having a good time and we're looking forward to having a busy year right on man uh rob hammersmith drummer of skid row and uh this that any other radio show dirty radio dead fm dirty radio classics we are phoning from across the desert we're gonna let him go and uh work on some monkey business and dude i want to thank you so much for coming on the show and and talking candidly about uh well this that and the other everything bro it was really a pleasure and very the really engaged, really engaging, and I, I I love hearing uh, some of the feedback about some of the the I don't want to say struggles, but some of the things that are you know listen you've been doing this gig for a long time, and there's still things that you you, know, you go hey I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing maintenance on this to make sure that when I go out there I'm on top, and and I appreciate that that actually inspires me to go okay cool I'm not the well, only one <laughs> yeah well I'm glad to hear that I'm glad to hear that thank you very much for having me it's an honor to be on the show. Cool, man. And enjoy the rest of your uh, time in the little city in the desert. And, uh, and and I really appreciate you, bro. It was really awesome to uh, get to see you last week. And again, thanks for the hospitalities. Please send my love to the boys. And, uh, I'll do it. And I appreciate it, man. Keep kicking ass. And uh, hey, anywhere we can find you uh, other than Instagram. And, and, and if so, what's that address at Instagram? Yeah, so I'm at Rob Hammersmith on Instagram. And then, obviously, at official Skid Row on Instagram. Uh, and Skid Row has the usual skidrow.com and, and Facebook events and things like that if you're looking for, for tour dates and, and the latest information. Uh, for myself personally, it's at Rob Hammersmith on Instagram. Awesome. All right, man. That's it, bro. You, Dude, you made the – this was actually one of the longer ones, but I got to tell you, it was I, the clock just went by so fast. So I appreciate – If I didn't have stuff to do this <laughs> afternoon, I would talk to you for the rest of the day. Right. I don't know if your listeners want to listen to me ramble. Or, or me ramble. But, uh, dude, take it easy, man. Thanks again for coming on the show, bro. It, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. There he goes, Rob Hammersmith, Skid Row drummer. That was a blast, and uh, I want to thank him for coming on and being candid and and talking about some of the same experiences that I went through th- through his lens. 
And uh, I don't know. It was, it was just very cool. Very, very, very cool. Uh, anyway, more of this, that, and the other radio show, DirtyRadio.fm, Dirty Radio Classics. And hey, while we are uh, at it, the gang is all here, uh, at least for another couple days here in Las Vegas. Uh, brand new Skid Row here. Just came out uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, we'll wrap up the last of uh, what's left of this show on this, that, and the other radio show, DirtyRadio.fm, Dirty Radio Classics. Yeah! Yeah! 